From the National Humanities Center Summer Institute and the Biscuit Cohort, you're listening to the University of Women podcast. Imagine a place where women's ideas are taught and explored, where buildings are named for women, where conference rooms are adorned with portraits of notable women, where women receive equal pay and hold positions of authority, where women's voices lead meetings and resound through hallways, and where all students go about their days and nights knowing they are safe from harm and free to develop their minds and bodies. Welcome to the University of Women. We are your hosts, Sheila Corsi, Kimberly Hamlin, and Terry Kennedy. As far back as the 15th century, women writers have mapped alternative cityscapes as a method of imagining places free from misogyny and violence, places in which both space and policy worked to center women. Inspired by the writer Rebecca Solnit's City of Women, an imaginative mapping project, we're here to reimagine the university as a city of women. We are three professors in three different fields, English, history, social work, and at three different stages of our careers, uh, a first-year assistant professor, mid-career, newly promoted full professor, and endowed chair and associate dean. But as women, we have experienced and observed similar patterns in our lives and in our universities. When I first started my job in 2007, I was the lowest paid faculty member on my campus. One of the things that really struck with me in the early days of my teaching was student comments and course evaluations. We actually had a time when a faculty member was circulating an article that was talking about um, how women professors Um, are viewed in terms of their looks and their dress and their voice and and just as you were saying. One of the very first people I met was a soon-to-be convicted sex offender whom the university sent to take new faculty photos. But it was already humiliating enough to kind of read those at the end of the semester but then to have to carry them around and show them to hiring committee. Letters of evaluation, right? How many studies show that the adjectives we use to describe our female students, our female colleagues, are so different from those that we use to describe our male students and our male colleagues. Had two female faculty members say to me, well, you know, if I was up, you know, graduating today, I wouldn't even get an interview because I don't have enough, I wouldn't have enough publications. Um, you have to, you know, you have to have, um, you know, a postdoc and about kind of constant visual pressure of, you know, how do I perform authority and femininity in a way that is... No one at the university took any action when we called to complain. Several months later, the photographer was arrested for breaking into the houses of female students and stealing their undergarments. So that was my introduction to university life. Our personal experiences reflect national and international trends. Despite the fact that women comprise more than 50% of undergraduate, graduate students and assistant professors, women represent only 36% of full professors. And the numbers are far worse for women of color, mothers, and women in STEM fields. 
A recent study conducted by the EOS Foundation and the American Association of University Women found that women are rarely in the highest paid positions at universities, which also happens to be the decision-making positions. In all fields, research by women is cited far less than research by men. And everyday sexism comprises a significant component of university life, as evidenced by the seemingly endless stories of sexual harassment by male professors and the public health crisis that is campus sexual assault. If universities are the places where cutting edge research is supposed to happen and where future scientists, novelists, entrepreneurs, teachers, and leaders train, what does this mean for our nation's future and the future of knowledge production? This podcast will imagine through history, fiction, science fiction, and personal narrative, what uh, the University of Women might look like and what our world might look like if the University of Women existed. First, uh, Sheila, that's me, will examine some uh, alternative cities of speculative fiction and the utopian imaginings that these cities make possible. Second, Terry will serve as a paranormal investigator and talk to the ghosts of the university and interrogate their experiences and why they're invisible. And finally, Kimberly will imagine how the University of Women might look in terms of campus spaces and geographies and how we might reimagine the university of today. In May, I finished my first year as a faculty member at a new university. Due to COVID restrictions, I taught hybrid courses and often moved between just one or two buildings. Now that the fall semester looms, I am faced with the sudden realization that I don't know where anything is. Getting to know a university often requires several different maps and a mastery of institutional nicknames and building monikers. It was with this focus on the topographical lexicon of university campuses that Kimberly recommended Rebecca Solnit's 2016 New Yorker essay, The City of Women, a consideration of named places in New York City that are overwhelmingly tied to white men. Solnit writes, A horde of dead men with live identities haunt New York City and almost every city in the Western world. Their names are on the streets, buildings, parks, squares, colleges, businesses, and banks, and their figures are on the monuments. For example, at 59th and Grand Army Plaza, right by the Pulitzer Fountain for the newspaper magnate Joseph Pulitzer, is a pair of golden figures, General William Tecumseh Sherman on horseback, and a woman leading him who appears to be Victory, and also a nameless no one in particular. She is somebody else's Victory. This haunting that Solnit describes imagines the nomenclature of New York City as a tangible kind of saturating presence. In her forthcoming book with Joshua Jelly Shapiro, Solnit details an experiment of remapping the various systems of New York City, trying on what it would look like to live in such power by, for example, renaming the various subway stops after women who lived and worked in those areas from Shirley Chisholm to Helen Keller. Solnit's language of trying on this power by imagining and mapping a differently named New York, mimics the strategies of speculative fiction, creating an alternative cityscape that might offer both a temporary escapist refuge and a blueprint for the future. It's world building of a sort. 
I'm a medievalist, kind of. So when reading Solnit's essay with Kimberly and Terry, my first reaction was, oh, Christine de Pisson. Christine de Pisson is, to our knowledge, the first professional female writer in France who, in 1405, authored a book of the City of Ladies. In this book, uh, the fictional avatar of Christine is first vexed after reading a particularly misogynist uh, tract by Matthiolus and struggles to fit the evaluation of women that she finds in books to her own personal experience of women. Christine is then visited by three allegorical virtues, the ladies reason, rectitude, and justice, who teach her how to more critically examine some of these texts and announce that she has been tasked to build a city of ladies to house and protect the past and present women. So Lady Reason says, thus, my dear daughter, you among all women have been given the privilege to build the city of ladies. To lay the foundations, you will draw running water from the three of us as from a clear well, and we will provide you with building materials stronger and more durable than any marble sealed with cement. Your city will be beautiful beyond compare, and it will last forever. So Christine goes on to describe her surprise turn as builder slash cataloger. Um, her construction montage is also an allegory, of course, for her own education. She carves the foundation of this city with the spade of her mind. And each brick of this city is a woman, some fictional, some historical, the Queen of Sheba, Judith, Blanche of Castile. The book is the city. The city is the book. Christine's City of Ladies is both exemplary and exclusionary, dependent on standards of conduct that expel unwanted or transgressive women, and rigidly defines what constitutes quote-unquote natural female behavior, and so is quite difficult to frame as a proto-feminist text. I do, however, want to keep focus on Christine de Pisson and later Solnit's conception of the city as an anthology, a collection of names that represent a shared social history, names that can profoundly haunt or shape a space. Even before the recognition of a genre called science fiction, there's a rich history of women's writing of speculative cities, from Marvick Cavendish's The Blazing World to Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz's poem First Dream. In more recent uh, decades and centuries, these speculative cities have also pushed back against the uh, hostile definition of science fiction as a white male domain. Janelle Monae's remapping of Fritz Lang's 1921 sci-fi film Metropolis into a multi-album Afrofuturistic space opera turns its central machine woman from the scourge of the city to the central heroine and savior of the androids. And Kay Jemison's The City We Became offers a cast of New Yorkers who literally embody the soul of the city and fight off a Lovecraftian monster that embodies white supremacy as well as the specter of Lovecraft himself. I teach a course on utopian and dystopian literature around twice a year. My students often come in with some background in Orwell or Huxley or enthusiasm for contemporary media like Black Mirror or The Hunger Games. My goal in that class is not only to create a classroom space built by these other writers, but to explore what the speculative power of science fiction is for. Drawing on the science fiction works of Octavia Butler, Adrienne Murray Brown argues in her book Emergent Strategy that the imagining work of speculative fiction is a way of practicing the future together. This is a time travel exercise for the heart, she says. This is collaborative ideation. What are the ideas that will liberate all of us? So, picking up the collective spades of our mind, this podcast asks, how might we imagine universities of women?
talked about time travelers, it's sort of the, the concept is still traveling. Um, and it would be nice if we could get to our destination. <laughs> yeah. I love how you wove in the Andrew Marie Brown imagining um, the future together and how we're basically practicing that uh, through our podcast. And really, I could see from starting, you know, in 1405, how so many women in particular have always been imagining the future together, right? So it's interesting for me as a historian to think, what what are the similar threads? What stays the same in these imaginative threads? And what has changed over these 600 years, right? <laughs> um, what did you, do you see common themes emerge in your study? Yeah, it's been really interesting to see in all the process of getting there versus kind of the process of world building itself. Sometimes, you know, for example, in Margaret Cavendish's The Blazing World, it is this alternate reality in space, the city um, that you get to through the North Pole. And in some of sometimes they just kind of spring fully formed. So you get the construction montage in Marie de France in which she is doing the physical building. And that is the process. The process is also the city. Or sometimes they kind of spring fully formed, that this is something that you just step into. I love the resonances between Sheila and Terry's work. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. in many ways, these speculative writers of these imagined cities are talking with each other across the centuries, right? And that's what Terry's going to invite us to do in her segment is talk across the centuries with the women who have in many ways shaped and created the universities in which we find ourselves in today. So I love seeing those linkages between the two. So shall we time travel together to the current century? Let's do. Let's go. Let's go. We will have a spirited conversation. Here we go. <laughs> On this episode of Ghost Seekers, Ghost Seekers is headed to Mountain University. Established as a land-grant university in 1864, the school is home to more than 50,000 students and a frightening apparition that roams a campus building by night. Our client, faculty member Dr. Mary Richmond, has been there for 20 years and was a student there before that. She's been hearing ghost stories ever since she's been on campus. It's a very large campus with activity throughout but there's one main building they want us to focus on, Hull Hall. It sounds like a really interesting case. Legend has it that Dr. Jane Adams, a social work faculty member, was bullied by a small group of what I would call mean girls on the faculty who were not supportive of her promotion to full professor As the story goes, Dr. Adams was in the sixth floor faculty meeting room when she was informed that she hadn't been promoted to full professor, despite an impressive record of scholarship. She reportedly walked out of the room, into the hallway, and fell over a banister, falling six stories to her death. Ironically, the deceased shares the name of the mother of social work, Jane Adams, an ardent advocate for social reforms, including women's rights. She created a well-known settlement home for impoverished families and immigrants. And get this, of all things, it was called Hull House. 
I've interviewed several faculty members and students, and it sounds like there's a lot of activity going on here. I was told that on the first floor, blood appears. They can actually see the outline of the spot where she fell. Many claim to have heard footsteps. Several report seeing a misty figure roaming the halls. Faculty members report hearing a loud banging sound and seeing a chair seeming to move on its own during faculty meetings. Because there are reports of an apparition and blood stains, I'm gonna put this thermal camera on the first floor in case there's a heat source or something it can pick up. The nice thing is I've got full lockdown. The campus is still temporarily closed due to COVID, so I'm able to have full access to the building without having to worry about any outside sound contamination. Okay, let's go. Lights out. I'm climbing the stairs now. Boy, that would be one hell of a drop. No one could survive that. Tonight, I'm investigating multiple reports of an apparition and unexplained sounds on the sixth floor of Hull Hall. I'm now entering room 666, the faculty meeting room. I'm gonna turn on my voice recorder and conduct an EVP session to see if anything happens. Hello, my name is Terry. I'm here in the faculty meeting room. Are you here with me? I wanted you to know that I'm really sorry about what happened to you. Whoa, what was that? It sounded like somebody banged on the conference table. Okay, I'm coming closer now. Please don't be afraid. Did you work here? Were you a faculty member? I'm here to help you tell your story. Can you try to talk into this recorder? I'd really like to be able to share your story. Can you make that chair move? Oh, no way, that's unreal. Okay, the sun's gonna be coming up soon. It's time to wrap. For nearly 30 years, there have been claims of paranormal activity in Hull Hall at Mountain University. I've been asked to determine what is real and what is not. So Dr. Richmond, I've been investigating the alleged haunting by Jane Addams. I actually set up a lot of equipment and luckily through all my data collection, not only did I get some first-hand experiences, but I got some evidence. I did find a record of a faculty member, Dr. Jane Adams, who fell, so that story is true. I looked into the reported pool of blood. I brought some luminol to spray in the area to see if I could find any blood spots. I did find one suspicious area, but it didn't come back as blood, so that particular claim was debunked. I found video from a surveillance camera inside the faculty meeting room. It shows this white ball of light moving across the frame toward a chair. Suddenly the chair moves. 
Here, I'll show it to you one more time. Strange thing, it's supposedly the same chair in which Dr. Adams sat just before her tragic death. Now, I want you to listen to this recording. I was in the faculty meeting room in Hull Hall, room 666, and all of a sudden there was a voice. I just want you to take a listen to it. I'm leaving Mountain University after a successful investigation. It seems the reported apparition is Dr. Jane Adams, who tragically fell to her death. I confirmed that despite an impressive record of scholarship and numerous publications in top-tier journals, Dr. Adams was denied a promotion to full professor. It sounds like there was bullying going on. So sadly, in this case, she both published and perished. Well, Terry, you promised us a spirited conversation and you delivered, my Absolutely. friend. <laughs> and my not so subtle metaphor is women as invisible. And so the ghost spirit metaphor, I tried not to tip my hat too much. And and I also used the names of uh, the founding mothers of social work in my, in my script. So Mary Richmond is among a generation of American women who searched for socially meaningful and intellectually rewarding work. And what she did is she took what was volunteer activity for women and turned it into a legitimate remunerative career that was recognized for its societal value. And then Jane Addams, who sadly was our, our spirit in this case, was an, was an advocate for social reform. And, and as I said in, in the script, that um, Hull House was actually what she was known for. So two really pioneering women who are the foundation of a, a profession that is um, predominantly women, but still has hierarchy. It's sad to see it in social work because you don't think of social work being a, a, a area or profession that has bullying. But I see that it is across disciplines, um, and it's it's tragic. And I think it's something that we we all need to be attuned to and support one another. I'm I'm a real ardent supporter of psychological safety, which I think is also a way to kind of get to where we need to go. And what do you think the ghost of Jane Adams would say? We came close to uh, meeting her in your episode, but what what would she say if we could hear her? I think she'd say, "What in the hull?" <laughs> So what, where are we going to go next, Kimberly? Next, we're going to think about campus geographies and what the campus geography of the future might look like and how the University of Women physically might look different from the university of today. Wonderful. Well, let's go there. I'm strapping on my seatbelt. <laughs> My desire to reimagine the University of Women began in earnest a few years ago after one of the students in my History of Sex and Gender class told me about her sexual assault. 
I was lucky, she said. Compared to the rapes of her friends and her cousin, my student described her own rape as, quote, not that bad. Because she had had only one attacker and because she did not contract an STI from the assault. For the past 13 years, I have taught classes on the history of women, gender, sex, and rape. And every semester, students share their own stories of campus sexual assault. Their experiences align with national data showing that more than 26% of college females experience sexual assault, along with nearly 7% of male students. The rates are even higher for trans students and women of color. Every single survivor's story is harrowing and heartbreaking, but this one particular student's story shook me to my core because of the matter-of-fact way she described her own rape to me, as if she had expected it all along. As parents, educators, and administrators, we are failing. In what universe is it acceptable for our young women to expect to be raped at college and to feel lucky if their rapes aren't that bad compared to those of their friends? What does the everyday expectation of assault tell us about gender and sexism in 2021? And what can we do to abate the public health crisis that is sexual assault? Over the past several months, I've been thinking a lot about campus spaces and campus geographies. In part, this is because the pandemic gave me some time away from these spaces, such that now they seem somewhat arbitrary and perhaps open for revision. And I've been thinking about campus geography because we have been talking about campus spaces on my in my classes. A big takeaway for me is that the University of Women is going to look a lot different than the university of today. For starters, women, students of color, and queer students are going to host all the parties at the University of Women. In my class on the history of Me Too, we read a fantastic and transformative book about campus sexual assault by professors Jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Khan called Sexual Citizens, a Landmark Study of Sex, Power, and Assault on Campus. What is so revelatory about this book, which is based on a multi-year study at Columbia, is that Hirsch and Khan treat sexual assault like the public health crisis that it is. Their public health approach opens up a whole new host of solutions, far beyond adjudication, to prevent assault in the first place. Besides comprehensive sex ed at the K-12 level, the most important preventative step, according to Hirsch and Khan, is to reconfigure campus geography. The majority of sexual assaults occur in dorm rooms, apartments, or fraternity houses. On most campuses, fraternities control parties and access to alcohol because of arcane rules that prohibit sororities from hosting parties with alcohol. This problem could be easily addressed by opening up more common areas, redistributing campus housing more equitably, and providing more late night options for students so that once the parties end, there are places to go besides someone's bedroom. I want to walk across the University of Women's campus and see flyers for karaoke night, dance parties, film screenings, house parties hosted by female students, black students, students of color, LGBTQ students. 
I want to walk across campus and have the campus map overflowing with places named for women. Female faculty members, female alumni. On my campus, just two buildings are named for women, one of which was renamed last year in honor of the first African-American student to attend my university. As on most college campuses, the rest of the buildings are named for prominent alumni donors or long-dead male college administrators. Likewise, my university is blanketed with portraits of old white men of yesteryear. These building names and portraiture have a stiltifying and exclusionary effect. What if our campus spaces embodied the goals of the university? What would this look like? For me and the students in my women's history classes, the University of Women would revolutionize our campus map by renaming existing buildings for women and by creating new spaces such as gardens, spaces for quiet contemplation, childcare facilities, to honor women and facilitate our continued success. As a historian who studies women in the U.S., I know what it took and what it meant for women to gain access to colleges and universities from the 1870s through the 1970s. And I know these women would be horrified, if not entirely surprised, to learn that their great-great-granddaughters now more or less expect that they might be assaulted during their college careers. When Christine de Paisan imagined her city of ladies, when Jane Addams helped reconfigure the social sciences and our understanding of female expertise, they meant to inoculate young women from such abuse. Somewhere along the way, we have lost the radical potential of the university by, of, and for women. Together, I hope we can reimagine what the university of women might look like. did such a beautiful job weaving together the the spirit and um, the historical construction of our individual segments and leaving us with a sense of hope and a vision for the future and where we might go. You did it in such a, a deeply moving way. You brought forth something that shouldn't exist for men or women and uh, that we must we must, we must change. Thank you for listening. I'm excited, maybe not excited, I'm glad, <laughs> grateful to have a, a place, a space where we can talk about this. I really think um, that our curriculum needs to change and also address campus sexual assault. Like we can't teach patriarchy, <laughs> you know, and expect assault to go away, right? So I think it is something we need to talk about in all of our classes. And I think it it really needs to be recognized as a DEI issue. And I really, you know, long for the day when presidents and provosts consider sexual assault not as a thing they have to like make a once a year statement about, but as really a core issue on campuses that it is a thousand percent their job to eradicate. Absolutely. So in the spirit, perhaps, of that of that hope or kind of future work, I know that we had discussed possibly ending this episode um, with each of us describing one wish or kind of one element that we hope to see in these uh, utopian imaginings for the future of the University of Women. Kimberly, would you like to go first? Sure. So um, besides the wish I discussed in my segment about um, 
working to eradicate sexual assault, the other big wish I have for the University of Women is to diversify the full professorate. So this may seem like a small problem. You know, it's not certainly the biggest problem facing universities today, but I feel like it's such an obvious fix, right? Like women make up the majority of college students, the majority of graduate students, the majority of assistant professors. So it's, it's not a pipeline problem, right? This is something we can fix. And we there's many universities that already have programs to support female assistant and associate professors and promote them along the way. So models exist. Um, and I think that diversifying full professors could have a really transformative effect on campus because these are the positions that, you know, become provosts, become deans, are in the pipeline for the change-making roles on campuses. So it's really troubling to me. I don't know if you all saw the um, study by the AUW and EON. We talked about a little bit in the intro that shows not just the, um, the lack of women's leadership, but the lack of equal pay, right? That of the highest paid positions on campuses, which tend to be the decision makers, so few of them are women and hardly any are women of color. So just making this one shift, not to make it sound small, it would be a big shift, but just making this one change, I think would really transform how our universities function, what kind of research um, is supported, what kind of research is completed. So rather than saddling associate professors who you know, tend to be overburdened with care work because we're midlife, right? Taking care of parents and children rather than saddling us with extra service work. What could universities do to support our research and help promote women, I think would be my my main wish for campus, for the University of Women. What about you, Terry? Well, so I want to affirm what you're saying, that it should be a pipeline and not a pipe dream. And um, so I think that's really important. And I think it is critical that the professorate reflect the student body. You need to imagine yourself being in future leadership, whether it's in academic leadership or administrative leadership. And I think that's really important. So I think leadership succession planning needs to be really inclusive and uh, representational. My wish is really kind of going back to, you know, my conversation about psychological safety and flattened hierarchies. I'd like to see a multiversity instead of a university. I think university kind of implies that there's sort of one way and it, it doesn't always imply the universe, the, the greater, you know, kind of sense there is about the universe. And so I'd really like to see a multiversity where there is more collaboration across disciplines, across programs with the community, working in co-creation with the community on what's happening in society and, and having better linkages to more outfacing scholarship, public facing scholarship, like podcasting, for instance. And also that there's more of a multiversity in terms of representation of, of the professoriate and the, and, and the leadership. So very much in tune with your thoughts. And Sheila, how about you? Well, I think I'm going to steal um, uh, from Sarah Ahmed and say that I think my wish would be to reframe complaint as necessary work, uh, you know, contributions to the department rather than as detriments to the department. Um, so I think, yeah, reframing the ways in which we consider complaint part of necessary academic work um, is something I really like to see change. So yeah, so here we go into the future. Can't wait to see you there. Yeah. <laughs> and here's to the University of Women. Here, here.